Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we are recording. So this is an episode of Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us as our very special guest for this episode is West McNeil of the Labor Religion Coalition of New York State. So welcome, West. Yay. It's so great to be here. Thanks. Yes, totally. You are a very honored and very esteemed guest. Um, and for the, the benefit of, you know, our, our podcast listeners who don't know me and Emily and West and Jess as personally as some others might, um, me and Emily spent a year interning together at Fairport United Methodist Church, where West's dad was senior pastor for 17 years. So we have this connection because this, you know, six degrees of separation in the United Methodist Church, uh, you know, connection because of all of that. Also, fun fact, West and I were born on the same day. That is a fun fact. I just like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very fun fact. Just remembering that. Yep. <laughs> totally, totally. But it's an honor to have you with us. And it's an honor to see you again. I was, let's see, I'm looking at the calendar two weeks ago-ish. I went down to New York City with a couple of my Schenectady colleagues um, where West was too, because it was a meeting of the Labor Religion Coalition and the Poor People's Campaign to talk about the crisis of white nationalism. So big meeting. And so it's, it's nice to be able to follow up on that with the space of a podcast, because I left that day long meeting slash workshop situation full of thoughts, some productive, some intellectual, um, and some sarcastic. <laughs> so you'll get to hear all of them. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and so the, the place that we always begin with this particular podcast is to invite you to share whatever you would like to about your spiritual journey. Yeah. So like you mentioned, um, my dad is a United Methodist pastor, so grew up in the church. Um, and I was think nine when we moved to um, Fairport where before that he had been in campus ministry so had a little bit of a atypical like PK upbringing um, but um, really kind of grew up in the Fairport United Methodist Church and um, was fortunate also that my dad was a co-pastor and I felt like there was um you know, I felt like there's kind of some some healthy like other also pastoral leadership um, that was really influential in my life um, as well as my family, of course. Um, anyway, I I went to Aldersgate camp when I was 11, maybe, which I think is in Central New York, and you know, Methodist summer camp. Um, when I was yeah 11, as I said, um, and that was kind of the first place where I've kind of felt my faith as my own and really started to feel a connection to God and to my spirituality and, and kind of want to take that on from for myself. Um, so church was really an important part of my life 
middle school, high school, um, through college, uh, I was always drawn to um, activism and social justice work. And really that is how I understood the call of the gospel um, to be really engaged in, um, you know, serving folks who had been um, oppressed by society. And then as I kind of became more aware, um, really wanting to understand and address the systemic causes of of that. Um, so, uh, and, and really at first I did not see the church as a place to do that. Um, and was interested in politics for a little bit. I studied journalism in college. Um, and I eventually found my way to um, Palestine in college and spent a couple summers there. The second of which was with Christian Peacemaker Teams, um, which is a organization coming out of the peace churches like the Mennonites. Um, and uh, did just just a couple months with them. Um, but those two summers in Palestine really had a big impact on my spirituality and my political consciousness as well, and really kind of provoked a crisis of faith, both in just witnessing the violence and the suffering around me in that context, but even more than that, kind of the extent of the um, misinformation and lies and distortions about the reality of what was happening there um, and the complicity of just so many institutions. Um, and I had kind of, I had already sort of been thinking about seminary before then, um, but that accelerated the plan a little bit, partly because I just wanted some space to like process what that meant for my faith, which kind of coming out of a white liberal um, kind of moderate like congregation, there was this theology that I found that was kind of based on like this idea of of progress and that, um, you know, the, the world is like basically good and things are moving in a basically good direction. We just have to like help more or something like that, which is um, a little bit of a flippant way of, this, of describing it. But but I didn't really find a lot of tools for dealing with like tragedy and deep injustice that there is not kind of a, a path that you can see out of. Um, so anyway, so that was kind of a, um, a personal struggle. And in the midst of that, I um, came out as queer in my senior year of college. Um, and obviously the United Methodist Church was not a supportive institution. Um, and I struggled a lot with that as well. Um, and just trying to kind of make sense of this institution that um, I felt very connected to and like nurtured by and supported by was not willing to recognize who I was. And, um, and also just personally, my coming out kind of process was also kind of tied to my call to, to ministry, just in the sense of like being more in touch with who I am and what I was being called to. So um, 
after seminary, I ended up taking a call out in the Pacific Northwest Conference, which was a little more open than Upper New York. Um, but um, long story short, ended up back in New York um, and am now ordained in the United Church of Christ um, and doing this work with the Labor Religion Coalition, um, which has really been a way to combine kind of my call to ministry with this context of um, trying to address the um, address the systemic issues that we're facing that are getting in the way of creating the kind of world that I believe God has called us to create. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, before you started working for Labor and Religion Coalition, I had never heard of the <laughs> religion, uh, Labor and Religion Coalition. So for the benefit of others who might not know a whole lot about it, other listeners, can you tell us a bit more about what they do and what you do with them? Yeah, so the Labor Religion Coalition has actually been around since 1980. Um, so it is older than I am, um, and was started actually by, <laughs> through a partnership of the president of the New York State Teachers Union and, um, Howard Hubbard, who is a longtime Catholic bishop in the Albany Diocese, um, and a really progressive, um, Catholic bishop. And so the organization has, has gone through a lot of different sort of seasons, um, in its existence. I have been there since 2014. Um, and at that time, a lot of our work was really trying to connect faith communities and faith leaders to coalition campaigns that were working on changing state policy. Um, so one of the campaigns we were really involved in was the fight for 15 in 2015 and 2016 around first raising the minimum wage for fast food workers and then raising the minimum wage across the state. Um, other things we were have been involved in is um, the green light campaign, which was getting access to driver's licenses for folks, regardless of documentation. Um, fights around the state budget to try to get more funding for, you know, education, um, hunger assistance programs, just kind of public goods and social services in general and taxing the millionaires and billionaires in our state more. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, but in the last uh, five years, um, we really started putting a lot of our focus into helping to build the poor people's campaign in New York State. Um, so I went to seminary at Union um, in New York City. And while I was there, worked with uh, the Poverty Initiative, which is now the Cairo Center, which is one of the two kind of nationally anchoring organizations leading the Poor People's Campaign. Um, the other one is Repairs of the Breach out of North Carolina. Um, so uh, I had kind of been hearing about the the dream of relaunching the Poor People's Campaign for, for a while, um, and it started to kind of come together in 2017. So what that work looked like since then um, was really trying to identify and connect folks across the state. Um, one of the challenges in New York and a lot of places is that there's this real divide between the big 
metropolitan areas and the rest of the state um, that's really kind of leveraged to prevent progress um, in a lot of ways. So one of the things that we tried to do is, was try to organize statewide. Um, we started with holding a series of truth commissions in 2017 in Allegheny County and Schenectady and on Long Island. Um, we did another series of those actually last year. But to try to bring folks together to lift up the experiences and insights of people impacted by poverty and racism and environmental injustice and militarism and all of these things. Um, and also to try to draw out both like the particularities of different places, but also how there's a common struggle across different areas and really common opponents as well. Um, so the Poor People's Campaign launched in 2018 with 40 days of action in state capitals and the in Washington DC. Um, and then since then have, it's included um, some big national mobilizations as well as just organizing across the state and also trying to um, target our state government around policy as well. So we have committees around the state um, really trying to do both you know, organizing political education, leadership development, um, arts and culture is a big part of the movement and, and faith organizing too. Sounds huge. <laughs> that sounds like so much and I love that. It so is so much. Somebody, yeah, speaking of somebody who's out in Buffalo, it can be really hard to participate in those actions because they tend to be centered around Albany or New York City, which is like a six to eight hour drive. And you know, it's a little, it's a bit challenging. <laughs> yeah, and I can, I can vouch for that. I, I used to live in Rochester. I lived there for a long time. And then after I got moved to this part of the state, suddenly the actions of the Poor People's Campaign became um, reachable and something that was relevant to my ministry for the first time. So, you know, something, something there that clearly, you know, can be, can be addressed, you know, um, but, you know, yeah, with time, I, um, growth. Perhaps by advocating for high-speed rail across New York State. <laughs> <laughs> my dream, high-speed rail line, New York City to Toronto. <laughs> that would be pretty amazing. That would be I would totally be all, all about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, um, and I, I've been absolutely aware of the movements going on with the with the labor religion coalition and the poor people's campaign for as long as I've been in the ministry. Mm -hmm. um, it's and the the things the specific um, the specific goals that they've been working towards that you just mentioned a minute ago, West. Um, it, it's both mystifying, infuriating. <laughs> but also maybe hope inducing that this is what we're fighting for because at least we know where we're going uh -huh. um but all of the different counter arguments that i've heard over the years for why uh someone who flips your burgers to put it in the most demeaning language that i've heard should make 15 dollars an hour yeah it's just yes, the, the, like the, the person who works at McDonald's who serves you your lunch every day is not a human being worthy of a living wage, Karen. I completely agree with you. Sarcasm, <laughs> sarcasm. And also, you're going to be awfully mad if you don't get that hamburger. Yeah. 
So I think that that's a valuable job, um, but it's it, it's just been, um, you know, and, and then the, the, the argument that comes up, but oh, but why should somebody who works at McDonald's make $15 an hour when I, in my job that I had to go to college in order to be qualified to do, I only make $16 an hour. And like the system is rigged to make poor people squabble with each other so that they never understand the actual problem. Like you should be making more money too. Exactly. And by advocating, by advocating for the fight for 15, you're actually helping yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot by going against it. And that's what the guy on the top wants you to do. The guy who's making a bazillion dollars an hour so that you only make 16. Yep. Exactly. You know? um, so, yeah. So, oh yeah. Sorry, Jess. I have family members that they supported themselves or support themselves now by flipping burgers or being a cashier at Walmart. So I find it insulting that they're like, oh, well, you know, you don't deserve, your kids don't deserve to have like food on the table because I don't think that a cashier at Walmart is worthy of that. And it's like, you're talking about my aunt or you're talking about my cousin. Like yeah. they're people that I know and love and that's like the best job that they can find in their area. And it's an honest job. So why would you say that to somebody? And at different points of my career, you could have been talking about me because I've also worked in both cash register operation engineering, as well as food services. Um, also, the idea that that's somehow unskilled labor that doesn't deserve to be compensated, excuse me, like the jobs that I had in food services are the nastiest, most difficult work I've ever done. Yeah. Like you need to be paying all the money to the people that are doing that. And, and then dealing with grouches that they serve that food to, really, they need to be compensated better. So a couple weeks ago, when I went to this meeting, that West co-led on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So it was a really exciting day trip because I'd never been to New York City before. And it was so pretty. We <laughs> walked by the exterior for that restaurant that they always go to on Seinfeld twice. <laughs> and I, I resisted the urge to stop and take pictures because people who live there don't do that. And I didn't want to look like a tourist, <laughs> but it was just like, how could you be around something so pretty and not appreciate it? But anyway, um, so I, while we were there at this beautiful church in, on the Upper West Side, this beautiful historical church, we were talking about the crisis of white nationalism and how there's this incredibly nasty, ugly intersection going on between a bunch of different social problems that are really all rearing their heads together because they're so interconnected that when one gets stronger, the other gets stronger too, and they feed each other. And that absolutely comes at the expense of the most vulnerable among us. So white supremacy this idea of nationalism, this America first, America is best and everybody else is last idea. And, the, and then this idea of the superiority of people who have more. 
And then even I would go one step further to argue this uh, superiority of one particular interpretation of Christianity at the expense of most others. All of that is absolutely stomping the people who need the most help among us. And so we sat at this meeting and we talked about all kinds of things ranging from redlining laws that that are absolutely still keeping people away from housing and home ownership today, especially people of color. And we talked about all kinds of wealth injustices and we talked about what Jesus would command us to do because of his incredibly deep empathy for the poor. And so it definitely lit my fire and filled me with gusto about, yes, this is absolutely what we need to be doing because that's what I believe too. That's, and you know, that's the reason why I, you know, when I was offered a seat in somebody's car to come down, I was like, yes. But after a day of listening to that, it filled me with questions about, so now what, especially because looking around the room of the people who were there, most of us sitting in that meeting were middle class at best, and probably not much more than that, especially because this, this um, race to the top of, of the wealth pyramid has really obliterated the middle class. It is not what it has been in decades past and may never be a comfortable way to live again. So it made me feel like, you know, this is, this is a great conversation, but it's kind of like, if a room full of people who identify as women were all spending the day talking about patriarchy and sexism. Like, that's great, but we really need some men in the room because they're the ones that are making the problem. We're, we're the ones that are suffering from it, but they're the ones that are making it. Right. Or if a room full of white people were talking about racism, or I'm sorry, a room full of people of color were talking about racism. And, and then we were saying like, well, look, we really need white people in the room because they're the ones that made the mess, right. you know? So I, it made me think, and, and just forgive, forgive my, you know, my, my very odd sense of humor, but hopefully you will come to appreciate and love it. <laughs> I left thinking, okay, I have a plan. I need, I have a plan and I need two things. All right. I need Jeff Bezos's wallet, and then I need a really big fan. And then <laughs> I'm going to open his wallet on a really busy street, maybe right on the Upper West Side, exactly. <laughs> yes, sure. And like a game show, have all of his cash just flying down the street so that people can just grab it. And Not yes, I know he- Not on the Upper West Side. They are the ones with all the damn money. <laughs> no, 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 Not on the Upper West Side. Different neighborhood, different neighborhood. Um, but you know, different neighborhood entirely. And I can, I can think of a few neighborhoods right where I'm from in Schenectady, where that wealth, that radical redistribution of wealth is the most necessary. And yes, if you're thinking it, I know that Jeff Bezos doesn't literally like have all of his money and cash in his wallet. <laughs> he has it on a million offshore high interest, illegal bank accounts. Um, but it, 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 but that that is the type of thing that I, I am now convinced that is the solution of the world. So, it, but you know? West, I, I mean, I think I heard you say advocating for taxing millionaires and billionaires, right? So that's that's like the systemic answer to doing that to a certain degree. Is that like is that where that's going? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, it is a tongue-in-cheek example, but but I think there's a couple things that it's getting at. One is like there is not we're not facing a problem of scarcity at right. all. Right. Um, replacing we're facing a problem of of distribution and of power. Um, and so I do think I mean every time that a huge transformative change has happened that has taken power from the hands of people who were um lording it over us abusively um it wasn't because they like got convinced or they heard the argument and were like oh right <laughs> we're doing it wrong um it was because the folks who were on the receiving end of that uh injustice and abuse like got together and demanded and forced change to happen um and so i so there's um like steps along that way and um the poor people's campaign nationally a couple years ago put out this moral budget document which goes through a whole lot of very specific like very specific policy solutions that could immediately make a lot of deep changes. Um, and the larger question though, which Martin Luther King got at in when he was um, organizing the first Poor People's Campaign in 67 and 68 was like, he talked about the need for a moral revolution of values. Um, and that's language that we still use in the Poor People's Campaign now, because it's both like the policy shifts, but it's also changing the culture and the morality of the the public right so that people aren't fed this crap about like people who work at fast food stores for example <laughs> which has all been developed to um to like as you all were saying to pit poor people against each other. And also because there has had to be this construction of all these lies about people because otherwise it's very obvious <laughs> that this system does not make any sense. Um, that the people who are feeding you food should not be going hungry themselves. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, and so, yeah, I guess to this is sort of a, like a little bit of not abstract but like it isn't yeah it's uh but it's a big picture kind of response but like there's this there's the policy side of things where there like are actually really concrete things that can shift the balance but then this other piece of like changing kind of the common sense understanding among people about what our society should look like mm -hmm. and then really changing the like dynamics of power that allow this all to be perpetuated. Well, and I feel like just just naming naming for folks that 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 we do share a common enemy whether we recognize that or not and then teaching that component, I think that in and of itself is really powerful. I was listening to NPR, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago. I don't remember when it was. Um, 
And there was a piece on how racism came to exist in sort of in the new world when when the Americas were being settled by Europeans. Um, and it was because evidently there was like a governor or some mayor, somebody in Virginia who, uh, and I might be getting the details wrong, but the overall narrative is this, this wealthy, white, powerful person recognized that the poor white folks who were in his community had a lot in common with the poor people of color in his community and that they all recognized that and started to kind of come together um, to speak out against the harms that were being caused, really being legislated by the the wealthy class. And so that's when laws came onto the books that effectively segregated people by race and granted white people privileges, rights really, that people of color were, were not legally permitted anymore, things like land ownership and, and that sort of thing. Um, those laws came on the books because they, the, the wealthy class recognized that if the white poor people and the poor people of color were bonded together, banded together, that they could overthrow the wealthy class. And so they had to pull them apart in some way. And that's really like one of the roots. I mean, obviously racism is a vastly multiply complex conversation, but that was a piece of it that I hadn't, a historical piece of it that I hadn't learned until recently. And it like, it gives me goosebumps thinking, even just talking about it, that that this was a very measured and intentional legislative action to pull apart the poor class so that we would not be powerful enough to overthrow the wealthy class. Mm -hmm. That just like, that floored me. And so naming that, teaching that, saying, hey, like <laughs> people who work at fast food restaurants are not my enemy. They, I have more in common with them than with the folks who are the wealthy sort of ruling class. Totally. Yeah, that was, yeah. There's not a question in there. It just floored me and it seemed relevant. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, that's continued. Um, and to me, one of the really striking things is like the violence that was needed to enforce those laws. Like, mm -hmm reminds us that there is no kind of innate desire to be separate like people were living together and wanting to unite and yeah. be in community across these lines and there was like mm. state violence <laughs> to enforce that that is kind of the root of what we're seeing yeah. now was slash mm. possibly perhaps still is <laughs> right yeah and so, emily why do you think that all the the states in the south are right to work states yeah yeah. Because if, you know, if you get unions together, suddenly black people and white people who are like working together realize they have a lot in common right. and they join unions and then they like fight against the no. <laughs> wealthy, the petty bourgeoisie class, which they're the ones that get elected to Congress. They all like give each other money. They're all like franchise owners and car dealership owners yeah. and they run this country and they do not like labor they do not like unions 
Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wanted to point out on the, so I work in healthcare and um, on the healthcare side, one of the hardest things is like knowing that so many things in a person's health are impacted by things that are totally external to the healthcare that they receive. And so 340B funding has been carved out from Medicaid in New York State's budget this year. And that's gonna have a massive impact on the federally qualified health centers in New York State. And like they've all been scrambling because April 1st is when it hits. And when it hits, if it isn't remedied, there's gonna be layoffs. And these are people that serve the poorest people in our state. So that's just another example of how like we're all being pitted against each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, um, there's just so many examples in this, the governor's budget proposal this year and for, you know, decades um, of little things that a lot of people don't really know about um, that are just kind of setting, perpetuating and setting up the system to, um, to be like worsening the inequality that that we have in the state mm -hmm. and cutting you know the services that a growing number of people rely on mm -hmm. and it's really it's bittersweet to think how naturally people would make bonds and friendships and then powerful alliances if not being prevented from that that the, the that human nature is to want to help each other and to want to make things better. And it, it's it's not just it's not just a physical violence or a state violence that has been enacted all of these years to keep this in place. It's a it's like a spiritual violence. It's a soul violence. Um, it's you know, and it's just really it's really damaging. And it's gotten you know, it's gotten increasingly worse. You know, I mean, even even during like my parents' childhood, you know, you could you could imagine becoming a middle class person and being comfortable yeah. with your yeah. life. And that that imagination is really, really, really disappeared. You need it more and more can't figure out why I'm not middle class. You know, I work like no. a normal middle class job, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and also something that um that has helped keep this um abusive system in place is that the powers that be have weaponized a few of even the best parts of the human spirit and one of them one of those pieces is optimism mm -hmm. so like especially like here in the united states we have this idea of like the american dream of you know your really nice house in the suburb and your white picket fence and your dog and your 2.5 kids i guess one of them got cut in half but we won't worry about that right now <laughs> um you know and like and that the idea that that is attainable and not only that, but that you should believe that you will have the prettiest house on the block. And so it, it inherently depresses us when we talk about how unobtainable even the idea of home ownership is now for most younger generations. And when we start to talk nuts and bolts about, you know, like, uh, 
the price of housing is completely inaccessible. Like get, getting approved for a mortgage is becoming increasingly inaccessible to huge sweeps of people. Rent is way too high and has vastly outpaced what people are making. It really, really dampens us, and we and our and we don't want to keep talking about the hard work that it would take to dismantle that system, because what we would rather talk about is, oh, but you know what? If you buy some lottery tickets, you might win. You could get the big jackpot, and then we purposefully sell more scratch-off tickets in poor areas just to keep people thinking. There's that hope. There's that hope you could get out of this. You could get a big windfall of money, and all your problems will be solved. And then when like financial experts and stuff and talking heads go on TV to talk about the problems of the economy and stuff, they don't talk about the systemic equality. They talk about now, now listen, if you do win the, those lottery winnings, this is how you want to invest your lottery money so that you too will be this very, very rich person. And th they're weaponizing our optimism and our hope, this idea that all is not lost no matter how bleak it looks. It can, they can always get better. If we could use that energy in a different way to band with one another and fight for just laws and just taxation, then we would actually achieve the American dream. But even me just saying that out loud, I feel depressed and I'm a minister. I really believe in what I'm saying, but I don't want to be saying it out loud because it's not the tape I've been taught my whole life. Right. You know? But so, okay, so here's my question for you then, West. What do we do about it? Like, like I, I when I have a to-do list, that gives me a sense of optimism because I know how to proceed. So I'm going to grab my phone and like pull up my to-do list app <laughs> and you're going to tell me like four sermons a year about the needs of the poor or organize a poor people's campaign event in your town or something like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I wish there was uh, a very simple step by step guide. I think it's both. There are both simple answers and then come and then it's complicated. <laughs> but I mean, I think the 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 really fundamental one is like kind of what we've been talking about that we have to break down this divide between the poor and in the poor people's campaign. Um, we talk about the 140 million, which is a lot more than what the federal government would tell you is poor people in the United States. Um, we use twice the supplemental poverty measure, which we don't have to get into, but just is a more realistic measure of like who is actually struggling. And in New York State, it's um, 8.6 million people was the, and this is before COVID numbers, we don't have, um, the updated ones broken down by race and demographics the way that we want to do that um so it's a lot of people and it's a very multiracial group of people that are in all the communities across our state rural urban suburban it's it's everywhere um and as we've also been talking about like this isn't you know i think there's there's a tendency in this country to demonize poor people and also make it seem like oh it's just like the person you walk by on the street like no basically most of us and most of the people we know are either currently struggling to make ends meet or like one disaster could happen in our life and there's like not really much of a safety net 
So um, I think this work of like helping us to see each other's experiences reflected in our own and to understand that like we are all in this common struggle to make the world um, more just and to have this abundance that we see all around us like actually create a better life for everybody um so i think i and i think as faith leaders there is an important role in like shaping that vision for the world um that you know i think certainly like speaking in faith communities and from the pulpit about specific social justice issues is really helpful and important um and also it's just kind of the it it's just sort of the worldview that we're inculcating people in like this like empathy and sense of connection and interconnection so i think i think that's part of it um and then specifically like being in um community with and building making connections across these lines of division based around like the struggles that we're facing um so you know i think there's there's like in different parts of the state and in parts of the country there are like organizations and organized impacted people like taking action around issues um and there are communities where there's that's not yet happening um and i think faith communities in the church um kind of one of the things we started to talk a little bit about at that conference that Natalie was mentioning um, is like when faith communities are a place that are meeting people's immediate needs like through you know clothing um, drives food pantries etc um, how can we shift to from seeing that as charity um, which is a very problematic understanding and problematic like power dynamic that it creates and oftentimes charity is like used to prop up the system rather than question it um so how how can those spaces be less about like we're helping those poor people but an understanding of um that in our current context we have to help each other survive and we're all we're all at the mercy of this system while it exists. How can we be helping each other survive and building that sense of um, like responsibility to one another and then also these bonds that can, um, you know, help people then think and dream about like, hey, maybe uh, my landlord shouldn't have the power to just evict me whenever <laughs> they want. Um, and like maybe if we came together we could we are more powerful than this one landlord and we can um change this yeah and then join with other people around the country so i think i mean there's always like specific campaigns and things to take action on which is important and helpful um and also i think there's kind of this orientation towards building this understanding of ourselves as connected and understanding of like how the world could and should be and that we actually can um come together and and change those things 
if uh, if we don't believe the lies that our opponents are telling us. Yeah, I think part so, of that. Um, oh, go ahead, Jessica. So actually, I have a question that's kind of specific to my area. So as you know, um, the Starbucks union got started in Buffalo, and it's sort of been like a match that got thrown onto a gas can and started this huge fire. But now also we have people, um, residents at UB who are attempting to unionize. We have Tesla workers who just got fired because they're attempting to unionize here. And um, I'm wondering what as faith leaders in Buffalo, we could do to support those efforts. Um, do you have specific initiatives or specific strategies that you recommend for of faith leaders who want to, you know, support unionization efforts. Yeah, I think that's really important. And kind of as the Labor Religion Coalition name suggests, it's kind of part of our history and still um, what we're involved in is supporting labor union activity. Um, and it really depends, like, I think the first step is to be in touch with the union organizers and, um, you know, get a sense of where they're at in a particular campaign and what would be helpful. But I think that showing support from the public and from faith leaders and faith communities can be really powerful. Um, a couple of times here with different labor actions in the capital region, we had like vigils on the picket line and would have like a little kind of interfaith service with folks, um, which was can be really uplifting for workers. A lot of times they'll have, you know, a faith tradition that is important to them and to see that reflected. Um, a lot of, I think another thing is for faith communities and clergy to sort of know who in their congregations are, might be like part of these unions or be in a workplace and, um, just be supportive of their of them, um, especially if folks are facing like retaliation. Um, I think sometimes things like, you know, writing a letter to the editor or an op ed in the local paper is um, something that can be helpful and just kind of showing up also when um, there have been a couple big strikes here over the last several years and um, at that point, sometimes people need help, like raising money for strike support funds or like, you know, food for workers who aren't getting paid. Um, there's, there's a lot of things. Thank you so much. I was thinking too that, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes being honest with our congregations about our own fiscal struggles, if that's a part of our story anyway. Um, those of us who are faith leaders can kind of give a different perspective because, you know, we were talking earlier in the episode this morning about how the middle class isn't really what it used to be at all. It, if there even is much of a middle class, I don't really know the data on that or how that would be identified or whatever. But I, I for me anyway, and I think for a lot of 
people who are leading mainline Protestant churches, um, the vast majority of our congregation is kind of that, that boomer generation that's really accustomed to like the word poor meaning something dramatically different than it does now. Does that make sense what I'm what I'm saying? And so I think like like even just I'm thinking back to last summer, my my spouse started a new job the first of November, but before that he was functionally unemployed for like six or eight months. We have four children um, and we had just bought our first home. And so we had like four babies to feed and a mortgage to pay. And we live outside of town in kind of a rural area, which was how we could afford the house um, that we're in. And, but that means that our heat is fuel oil, which makes me cringe. I actually have a, a heating company coming today to talk to me about much more earth-friendly sources. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's that's what we got when we bought the house and we didn't have the capital at the time to, to switch it over. And so we were paying like our mortgage plus feeding our kids plus like $800 a month sometimes just to heat our house. Yes. Um, and so it was, you know, I, I became very well versed in where all of the food distribution sites were and all of the food pantries. And at one point I was calling my son's elementary school because it, he was acting out at school and they were like, is something going on at home? And I said, yes, we're struggling. Um, hubby's out of work. And they were like, well, let us send some cereal home with you, like cans of soup and boxes of cereal, which was a huge gift. Um, we were on some government assistance benefits to help us through too. But like, just to help our congregations understand that like me as their full-time, they know my salary, they vote on it every year. Um, me as their full-time pastor with all of the full-time pay and benefits that wasn't enough um and we're not living like highfalutin extravagant lifestyles you know i i promise you i did not buy very much avocado toast during that season of my life <laughs> but uh just to help I, I wonder if it would help to help our congregations understand that Poor doesn't just mean the the sweet gentleman who sleeps on the church lawn and hides his garbage bags of clothes behind our bushes. That that poor means the pastor too, sometimes, you know. And I would add to that, Emily, because I emphatically agree. And also I'm very sorry that you went through that. But um what I would add to that is that we need to we need to work on deconstructing the stigma and shame around the idea of being poor because a lot of us can relate to a struggle exactly like that and because we're because you know, like because we work in the ministry we we know confidential details about what what people have struggled with so we know that behind this this veneer of things being okay that will present to the public um, a lot of us are struggling way more with the cost of utilities and, and, and 
in rural areas like that, where you have to put propane in your in your tank in order to get heat in your house, that is a full on crisis in the winter. And I learned that during the year that I spent up in the Adirondacks. Um, but you know, when you start telling a story like that one, um, a lot of people who do not want to think of themselves as poor are going to find themselves against their will, kind of nodding along and saying. Yeah, same. And the def and the defensive shield that's going to fly up immediately is going to be like, no, no, but I'm not poor. I'm not. I'm. I'm not one of those people. I am not poor. Uh, I'm struggling or something, but I, I'm not poor. Yeah. Um, that's that's a really it, it's it's very devastating to have to to have to look at yourself that way. And it, and it leads then to this 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 um this sense that we have of no 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 I'm not one of those people mm -hmm. and then this dividing and separating of different groups of poor, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So like to the culture change that West that you've been talking about, I I feel like even just naming that I am them or I was them or whatever, you know, and, and to that end, I, I love that you all kind of tell me again, you doubled the poverty level and then that's what you use as your definition of poor. Yeah, it's 200% of the supplemental poverty measure, okay. which takes in more factors into account than the official poverty measure. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's really wise and appropriate and gets more at people's daily lived experiences. Um, and so I think maybe offering offering those numbers up, maybe I'm thinking just, again, my to-do list, the next church newsletter, maybe there's a piece in it that says, uh, that that's titled Redefining Poverty or something like that. Um, and just kind of helping folks understand that, um, I don't know, I, I almost want to say normalizing poverty, but that's not exactly what I mean. But, but I think it gets, what I'm trying to find words for is, Natalie, what you were saying about, about healing over that divisiveness, that, that us and them mentality um that yeah i think i i think that gets to that morality change too that like if you see someone right in front of you who's who you know to be working hard and have a master's degree and have done all of the quote right things unquote who's saying i am them <laughs> that that kind of takes the air out of the balloons of the arguments of like, well, if you just work hard, if you get your education, if you, um, you know, put your 10% away into savings each month, or, you, you know, that if you do things my way, you'll be fine. <laughs> there's, um, there's a, so this is one of the big problems in the United States. And I think I argue that it would come out of like English historical ideas about deserving poor versus undeserving poor. And that was like how they arranged their charitable assistance system during the Elizabethan era and through to the Victorian era with the workhouses where unspeakably horrible things were done to people, like just shamefully horrible things were done to people. 
but scripture is on our side with this one. Scripture says repeatedly that if you do injustice to the poor, you are hurting God and you are making God angry. Scripture repeatedly says, other than the books of Proverbs, which I argue is just like, oh my God, Proverbs is like full of like the LinkedIn philosophy of like the biblical era. Bracket Proverbs, put it aside. The prophets, because I'm doing a Bible study in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah. Um, and then Jesus is saying it the poor, being poor has nothing to do with your morality. Absolutely not. Who sinned? Did this man sin or did his parents sin? Neither one, right? And it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse to mistreat people because God does not care how fancy your worship services are unless you are doing justice to the widow and the orphan, like period. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that, you know, we need to remember that and to like argue that because like the scripture says that, I mean, people always say on the, on the evangelical right, scripture says it in black and white. I'm like, scripture says a lot of things in black and white that you choose to ignore. Mm -hmm. And this is like the big one that gets said lots and lots of times. And there is no ambivalence about it. So <laughs> let's knock it off, Christians. And um, that's one of the things that I really dislike about um, a lot of arguments by evangelical Christians about the dismantling of um, the government safety net. Oh, well, people should just rely on charity. Well, when um, in our when um, the government school lunches program was being cut off, all the Christian churches were like, oh, well, those kids should just be fed or the, by their parents or they should be like, you know, they should rely on charity. They shouldn't rely on the government. And it's like, OK, well, it, are your churches going to take over feeding those children every single day for breakfast and for lunch? Well, no. OK, well, you just like showed us that you're not really interested in providing charity except when you feel like it. And that's not. That's not charity. That's not a safety net. That's not real assistance. And that's not even like a Christian management of the proper stewardship of like riches. So that's why I find the whole thing extremely disgusting. I find the whole argument extremely disgusting. I, <laughs> I kind of like the concept of people paying taxes and rendering unto Caesar because sometimes rendering unto Caesar is the closest to charity that some Christians get. So. Okay, there. That's my that's my spiel. But I'm just saying that I am, I stand in solidarity with Emily and her struggles because that sucks. Yeah, yeah, and I think back to Emily's point about um, talking about these experiences in church, um, and to your point about scripture, like I think that there's a tendency to speak to our congregation sometimes with the idea in mind that the person we're talking to is like upper middle class and interpreting the scripture to them, which first of all is just not true in terms of who actually often makes up our churches. And, and sometimes it is, I guess. Um, but scripture wasn't written by or for people who were part of the elite and we it's actually kind of hard to make 
the scripture makes sense to that perspective. I that's part of why we end up spiritualizing things and then it's like, what is this saying? It doesn't make any sense. But when you read it as being written by a community of poor people for a community of poor people, then it actually there are a lot of things that make sense and are good news to the poor, right? Which is what the gospel is, um, is meant to, to be and is. And just one other thing I wanted to, to throw out there is actually the um, New York Poor People's Campaign put out a Poor People's State of the State report in January um, that just gives kind of a little snippet of what the situation is for folks in New York State in relationship to systemic racism, poverty, militarism, and ecological devastation. Um, and so in terms of a resource to kind of introduce some of these ideas, um, it's a pretty accessible and recent one. Um, and we actually also have a study guide that we just put out to help um, groups or individuals uh, process and discuss that stuff. And that's all at nysppc.org. Fantastic. So West, one place that we always take our interviews, especially because we have this common thread that we're, we're facing the, the, the great perils of our time and the evils of humanity, and it can really get us down. What is something right now in your life that excites you? That's a great question. Um, my son is turning two in a few weeks. Aww. And he is the thing in my life that consistently brings me a lot of joy. Just seeing, watching him discover the world. Yeah, we witness a little miracle every day in our kids, even though that's, that's very trite language, but sometimes the trite is what you need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. West, if there was one thing that you could tell the world about God, what would it be? That is another great question. And I think the aspect of God that brings me the most hope in these times is the um in the christian context the cross mm. because to me that is such a clear message that god is on the side of those who are persecuted and killed by empire that god isn't like a neutral moderate in the middle of being like oh i see i see both sides of it God um, was a victim of empire and um, because the the gospel is opposed to empire. And so I think for all of us who feel kind of that heaviness of the injustice of the world and um, you know experience the implications in our own lives and in the lives of people we love to know that um god is not ambivalent and god is not um apart from that um that god is actually on 
on the side of those of us who are um, who are experiencing that violence and also um, and also holds out this vision of of justice and abundance that we actually see around us in creation, I think, and in our relationships with with community. It's a beautiful thing to be reminded of. Question. I love every answer we've gotten so far. This is always my favorite part. Yeah, totally, totally. And it, just so much comes from it, sincerely. Well, now I'm wondering, Natalie, and I'm just gonna put this out there. Could could we like air episodes out of order so that we air this one on Holy Week? Oh yeah, we can do that. That can Amazing. be done. That can be done. Yes. <laughs> so, I feel yes. like Wes just gave us all our Holy Week message. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yes. So this will be a, a, a gift to all of our our congregations and our and our friends of of one particular faith group when this drops. So totally. West, I thank you so, so much for accepting this invitation and for your time. You've really, really been a gift to us. Well, thank you so much. It's really great to talk with you all. You totally. You've given us a lot of ideas about how to change the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. So peace and love. Bye, y'all. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.